Mahalakwasak is black ash trees. And my story with black ash starts from my teen years when I went and visited my great aunt. Her name is Nettie Royce, Nettie DeForge. And I walked into her house and there were baskets all over the place, small baskets, handkerchief baskets, sewing baskets. And I asked her about those. And she shared that they were baskets that her mother, Elvino Bompswin, had made. And that was the first time that I learned a little more about my Abenaki history. And it wasn't just a, oh, you have some relatives who were native. Welcome to Heartwood, Vermont, a podcast that connects Vermonters to our forested landscape through stories and answers your questions about our forests, their management, and the forest economy. We're your hosts, Lisa Salisville with Vermont Covert's Woodlands for Wildlife, and Kate Poor with UVM Extension. All three of our ash trees are under threat from a tiny invasive insect called emerald ash borer. The black ash are the most vulnerable of all. This loss of our ash trees is going to be felt by our forests, but also by people and communities who formed a deep connection with these trees. Today, we're going to hear from a variety of voices, including Carrie Wood, an Abenaki basket maker who you just heard from, and we also are going to hear from an ecologist, a research forester, a county forester, and a landowner. And they are all diving into why black ash trees matter. To help us understand the concern of emerald ash borer and black ash trees in Vermont, we're joined by my extension colleague, Ginger Nickerson. Welcome, Ginger. Thanks for having me on the show. Ginger, tell us a little bit about what you do. I am the Forest Pest Education Coordinator for Vermont's Urban and Community Forestry Program. Basically, I provide education to individuals, municipalities, and community groups about the invasive pests that threaten our forests. As you mentioned, Lisa, we have three species of ash in Vermont, white, green, and black. And all three are threatened by this invasive beetle called the emerald ash borer, or EAB for short. EAB is originally from Asia. It arrived in Michigan in 2002 and has been slowly moving east. Sadly, EAB was discovered in Vermont in 2018. Knowing this, many people are trying to figure out how to prepare for losing most of our ash trees. Of the three species, black ash has no resistance to this beetle. And this is heartbreaking for people across the Northeast, especially indigenous peoples who've used black ash for centuries to make baskets and other items. Black ash is also ecologically significant because it plays an important role along our rivers and in our wetlands, buffering floods and maintaining water tables and providing habitat for wildlife. Each of us has a connection to the trees in our woods for a variety of reasons. And that's true for black ash as well. Lisa, tell me a little bit about your connection to black ash. To be honest, Kate, I never thought much about black ash until the threat of EAB came along. Then I learned how all the ash species, but especially black ash, are susceptible and that we may lose yet another species like the chestnut and the elm. It's just sad and concerning. So Ginger, you recently talked to Carrie Wood. Tell us more. Yeah, so Kerry is a member of the Nulhegan Band of the Abenaki people and a black ash basket maker. Black ash, which is also called brown ash in some parts of the country, is an important tree to indigenous woodland people from Maine to Minnesota. 
Ash trees are so important, they're actually part of the Wabanaki people's creation story. I asked Carrie to share that story with me. Uliuni, Inda Luizi, Kali Abazi, Elno Bayodwa, Ala, Kiri Wood, Iglis Moniwi. Indain, Colchester, Vermont, Pasuziwi, Pita Bagok. Thank you. <laughs> Good morning. I am Kali Abazi in the Ibaniki language, or Kerry Wood in the English language, and I live in Colchester, Vermont, near Lake Champlain. Talbadoc is named God, or the creator, or the one who makes something out of nothing. And Talbadoc created all of our relations in all of the world around us. The, what we call creepy crawlers and four-leggeds and the trees and the, and the plants and the sea creatures and everything around us. But something was missing. Salt Halberdock looked around and said, the stones, they, they were some of the first creations and they, and they have wisdom and power. And so we'll make beings out of stone. And so the stone people were made. But the stone people were really big and, and walked all over, and they didn't really, they weren't very careful. They were very clumsy. They walked all over everything, and, and Talbadoc was like, oh, no, no, this is not good. They're destroying my creation. They're doing everything for themselves. They're abusing my creation, and, and, and they're destroying all of the other life by just walking all over everything and destroying it. So he broke up all the stone people which is why there's so many stones across the green mountains of Vermont, everywhere in the woods, the stone people. And he said, let's try again. And he looked around at, at the creation and he noticed the ash trees. And the ash trees went with his creation. They swayed in the wind. And the ash trees with their green and they gave oxygen for the rest of the living beings and, they, and they, they worked with creation, with his creation. And they were supple and they moved easily. And so Talbodoc had Gluskabi draw an arrow and shoot it into the heart of the ash tree and out of the ash tree came the people. And the people worked with all their relations. And the animals were willing to give up their lives to help sustain the people. But the people were also willing to nurture and only take what they need. The stories matter so much to the Abnaki people because that's where the lessons of life are learned. Um, the creation story helps you step back and say, well, what is my relationship with the rest of the world? Am I, am I just looking out for myself as the stone people did? Or am I willing to look at my place within the circle as the tree people do? We'll hear more from Carrie later in the show about the use of black ash in basket making and its cultural importance. But let's take a look first at where you can find black ash. So what I know about black ash is that they have some really cool adaptations that influence where they live and grow. They tend to grow in places where their roots can be wet. Sometimes we say that black ash are one of those species that is okay getting its feet wet. You might find them in ditches along the side of the road or more often living in riparian areas swamps or wet seeps in the woods. We took a little field trip to Rich and Ann Chalmers, Covert's cooperators and property owners in Williamstown, 
To learn more about where we might find black ash, Alaire Diamond, an ecologist with the Vermont Land Trust, joined us as well. Yeah, you've got groundwater. So we're at the, a seep at the edge of this wetland, and we were, Anna and I were just talking about the wildlife value of these kind of wetlands and how when you have a, a groundwater seep, there's groundwater that's coming up. It's um, all throughout the year, you know, and it's the temperature of the ground beneath the frost line. And so there's there's just a, lo a much longer period of the year when there's green plants. And so animals like bears um, will often be here first thing in the spring, last thing in the fall, um, because there's just green, there's living tender green plants that they can eat. So this wetland area is about three acres when you include the 100-foot buffer around it. And we have um, woods going up on both sides. And the, the uh, wetland itself is kind of north-south oriented with a little dogleg on the, on the north end. Um, we're just at the beginning looking in. Yeah, and some of the plants that we're seeing, there's yellow birch, um, there's swamp saxifrage down here growing beneath our feet. There's foam flower, which is a, a really common plant of wetlands, but I always see it uh, with black ash. Like it's, it's almost always growing right near black ash. Loves groundwater seepage. Um, there's red spruce in here, balsam fir, obviously black ash. Red maple probably. And the trees are growing on little humps. Little hummocks. Yeah, little yeah. hummocks. Usually in kind of a wet place. I wouldn't be finding it on top of a rocky cliff or something like that. Often, you know, it's growing in a wetland. It often has a mossy base. You know, mo a lot of trees in wetlands have that. That, But you see over here, there's like mosses and sort of wetland plants growing right up the base of the tree. Um, and it sometimes has some really interesting lichens growing on it. There's one called Loberia that I know we found out here. I have a picture of it. So, black ash thrive in really wet places. Director of the UVM Forestry Program, Tony D'Amato, and Franklin and Grand Isle County Forester, Nancy Patch, gave us some additional insights into how they've adapted to grow in these wet environments. These aren't stagnant, like bog-like environments you might see with you know, black spruce. And so, um, you're often, often finding it in these wetlands that have at least some um, you know, interaction with the uplands and are getting minerals into them. And then the same time can be pretty wet for for even into july depending on you know the you know if it's a normal precipitation year um, but black ash is pretty well adapted to dealing with its roots being wet um, it has um, you know, specialized cells that allow it to bring oxygen from above the soil surface down to its roots even when they're flooded so it's, it's really well adapted to that environment it's a very slow growing tree to start with because of the site conditions that it's in and it's also has a a quite an even growth pattern typically. And the, the one quality that is really, is you know, that sponginess doesn't occur as I described on just the bark. There's sponginess actually that goes throughout the, the tree. So Ginger, help me understand, is it that sponginess that Nancy describes that makes black ash so good for basket making? It is. Black ash is what foresters call ring porous. The growth that happens in spring has really big pores, while the summer growth is denser. So when you pound on a black ash log, the spongy spring growth rings separate really easily from the denser summer growth rings, and you get these nice splints that can be peeled apart and used for weaving. Carrie does a great job explaining this process. But listeners, you can hear the sound 
of people in the background pounding on an ash log. Inside of that growth wing is amazingly smooth. It's satin silk smooth. It's just phenomenal. But what's also unique about it is it's almost like ribbon. It's very, very pliable. Um, and, and, you know, some basket makers, um, you need to really soak and soak and soak the material you're making the basket to be able to have it be pliable. With black ash, we, we just moisten it. And we weave with it. And, and it's, it's literally like paper ribbon. Um, so it's very, very unique. There is nothing like black ash to make a basket out of this. Just, it's so unique. Um, and the thicker black ash, the ones that they wouldn't necessarily process down to the ribbon, um, are incredibly durable and strong and yet still pliable. So making like a pack basket or a harvest basket or laundry baskets or feather baskets. Utilitarian ones would last literally for generations. Um, and then if you want to make more fancy baskets, the smaller ones that, that maybe are used for like sewing baskets or um, handkerchief baskets was a really big thing back, you know, when we all used handkerchiefs more. It's the smaller, more pliable um, splints. So like anything else, it depends on what job you're trying to do. In 2013, I had the opportunity to actually learn how to make those baskets. And I did an apprenticeship program that was sponsored by the Vermont Folklife Center with Jeannie Brink, who had become a master basket maker. And Jeannie's also my cousin. She's my father's generation. She's Nettie's daughter. And so it came full circle where I started learning how to make these baskets that I had seen when I was 16 or 17 years old. And in making the baskets, I started because it was just an interesting part of my family history. But it became much more than that, because Jeannie started also sharing stories of the Obamsawin family who lived in Thompson's Point in Charlotte, Vermont. And Simeon Obamsawin was Elvine's father, and he was hired on as a caretaker. And they were given a cabin to live in year-round so that they would keep the grounds of Thompson's Point where all of the uh, nice camps are. <laughs> keep them up through the winter months and, and help with security and things like that. But that's where they grew up. And they made these baskets to sell, to supplement, and to be able to afford to live there. They became a sustenance for them. And so I, I started hearing stories of my family that I had never known before. And they started resonating with me. And I started feeling a connection when I was weaving with something that I didn't understand, but that was very powerful. And so that really intrigued me to learn more about the language and more about the culture. And so black ash is the materials that we make these baskets out of, black ash and sweet grass. And as I learned more, I discovered it's related to the um, creation story for the Abenaki people. And how cool is that? And I started learning more about Abenaki culture and I started learning the language. And as I've learned the language, how I think and how I see the world has completely transformed. It's not just making a thing. Baskets, um, I, I've come to recognize, have, have a spirit of their own, if you will. Um, the black ash teaches us patience. And in making a basket, I need to be emotionally and physically in a calm place that if, if you think about doing any craft, 
if you're tense and you're frustrated with whatever your day has been, that is not the time to sit down and make a basket. I will make mistakes. I will not, it, it will not go well. Community, bringing people together, learning patience and perseverance and being a good steward. So it seems like black ash are really very site-specific. How common are any of the three species of ash in Vermont? We usually say that all of the ashes compose 5 to 7% of our forest statewide on average, but that figure can vary a lot depending on where you are, and there are some areas with much greater component of black ash. That number dramatically increases when you get to Grand Isle. And uh, there's probably, we, I mean, again, we don't really know, but just as a, a wild guess, we've guessed anywhere between 30 to 50% of the composition on, on Grand Isle is ash. There's pockets of black ash through all the way to Highgate uh, in Franklin County has a great deal of black ash and uh, Albert certainly does and continues on down through the islands. And of course there's black ash spread throughout the state. Uh, that, but it really is concentrated up here in the island communities. So it sounds to me like you have to be in a very specific place to find black ash. Yeah, and if I'm out in one of those places, I want to know how to identify it. So when we were out at the Chalmers property, I asked Alaire Diamond to give us some tips. So if you walk up to it and you sort of push on it with your, with your finger, it's a little bit squishy. It's not the only species of tree that does that. American elm does the same thing, and it's actually quite easy to mix up American elm and black ash. When you look at the pattern of the bark, it's, it's a little bit of like a diamond pattern. Um, other species of ash, green ash, white ash, have a really, really strong diamond pattern bark. Black ash is a little bit less so because those that quirkiness, there's bits that like flake and pop off of the bark. It has a pretty distinctive like light kind of warm color. And then really distinctive um, for all ash species um, is that they're opposite branched. So the the leaves um, come out on, uh, right across a twi the twig from each other. So it's uh, as opposed to sort of alternating up the twig. So if you look up into the canopy, and black ash typically does not have branches low down, it's they're mostly concentrated high up, and that's just a typical thing for this species. The small branches are opposite each other coming off of a bigger branch. In the summer, all ashes are compound-leaved trees. So the leaf is, for black ash, is probably like, I don't know, eight inches to a foot long, and it has leaflets coming off of it. And those leaflets are also sort of opposite each, like the, leaf, the little leaflets are opposite each other on the sort of big stem of the leaf. Um, and with black ash, again, this is something that if you're comparing it with other species of ash, the leaflets are sort of have, they don't have a little mini stem or petiole of their own. They're just kind of stuck right up against the main stem of the leaf. It's not a very big tree. Um, the, I think the biggest ever black ash tree that was recorded by the U.S. Forest Service was maybe 28 inches in diameter, which is, you know, it's a good size, but it's nothing like the biggest sugar maple tree or white pine or anything like that. This tree we're looking at right here is probably seven inches in diameter, something like that, um, which is a decent sized tree. It's it's not um, a tiny tree. This, this tree might be pretty old. Given that black ash grow in really wet areas, is anyone talking about the hydrological importance of these trees and what the potential loss of black ash means for riparian areas and flooding? 
Yes, that is a real concern among ecologists. Black ash play a really important role in maintaining the water level in forested wetlands and in areas along rivers. So as trees, black ash take up a lot of water and evaporate it through their leaves in a process called transpiration. And the concern is that when the ash trees in wetlands die, grasses and shrubs will take over the area. And those are plants that can't take up and evaporate the same amount of water as trees. Here's Tony and Alaire talking more about that. They provide a pretty important role in terms of flood attenuation, and it, they really play a key role in you know, using water and kind of keeping those water tables um, fairly stable and low. And so the, the, the concern is, you know, when ash dies and it's not replaced by the tree species, that those water tables will then rise and kind of swamp out those, those spots. Once that water table goes up, and, and you kind of have this prolonged flooding. Um, you know, most tree species can't deal with that. And so um, you might lose the site to like more of a marsh-like condition. The mortality of ash will actually cause these areas to kind of regress into a non-forested state. Um, and so because ash can, can live in these areas, it you know, really keeps those in a pretty key, key balance where it's using that water, keeping that water table stable um, and allowing other species to you know, at least persist in those systems. We're in this wetland here, and it's a really diverse wetland in terms of the trees, right? We've got black ash, we've got red spruce, we've got red maple, we've got balsam fir. Um, and if black ash were to, if all of these black ash trees were to disappear um, from EAB, that would be very sad, but, there, but this would still remain a forested wetland. Um, in some places where there are wetlands that are just all ash, whether green ash or black ash, um, there is a, a potential that when EAB comes through, you end up with a, a just a different kind of wetland afterwards. So a wetland that's less of a forested wetland. These trees, they, they take up a lot of water. Um, and so we are able to walk through this wetland and it's kind of squishy, but we're, we're able to walk you know, through it without getting um, water over our boots. But in, um, if, if all of the trees that are in here were to be gone, then it might transition to something more like a cattail swamp or maybe a shrub wetland. And, I'll open a place for um, like non-native shrubs to come in as well. There's often things like reed canary grass and, and other um, invasives in the understory. So once you lose canopy cover, it's really hard to get trees back in those spots. And so, um, so losing whether it's green ash or black ash from riparian areas, a lot of those are already highly impacted um, with invasives and other things. And so it's it's kind of this this double whammy where you're losing the, the canopy cover and then it's also allowing some of these invasives to explode. So that's really interesting. Black ash are important hydrologically, but they're also important ecologically. What are some of those benefits? Yes, this came up when we were out in the woods. Nancy shared the importance of black ash's nutrient-rich leaves, while Alaire talked about their shallow roots and how both of these traits make black ash swamps important habitat for wildlife. Let's hear from Nancy, Rich, and Alaire. Ash across the board, not just black ash, has a specific um, importance to the forest overall. They are one of the best nutrient cyclers that we have in the forest. And that cycling of nutrients allows for other species to do well. Pulling that nutrient out of the ground and then dropping it again into its leaves, making the source of those nutrients more available to other species. It's 
So when you come out here in the spring, is it just like a chorus of of peepers? It is, and yeah, a chorus of peepers and wood frogs in particular in the beginning are just, they're very loud. <laughs> and we come out um, on the first rainy night. Every year we come out when the spotted salamanders are moving and mating in the pools and there's within a not everywhere but they tend to congregate and there are places within you know a couple of feet where it might be i can't even count them 10 15 20. Yeah. there's a vernal pool right there the trees that have been growing in in here um they end up being pretty shallow rooted because of the constant saturation the water um in the soil and so they're they're shallow rooted the roots spread out kind of laterally instead of going deep into the ground and so when those trees die they'll tip up they'll just fall over and the root mound is just like this big kind of thing sticking up out of the the wetland and the log itself is then starts to decompose becomes a place where other seeds can alight and start to take root or other plants can sort of grow up on them and then those tip up mounds are places where you have a little pool of water on the underside of it where the tree roots were um, and there's just like interesting small you know insects salamanders other wildlife that can be in there there's even some kinds of tip-ups that where birds will make their nests in the fine roots that are in the in a tip-up so they're really really fun really interesting part of what makes this wetland structurally complex it's not just a straight flat sort of wet area it's it's a wet area that has hummocks from some from the ferns and the sedges it has the the sort of long partly decomposed logs that you can almost walk okay ginger we've learned where black ash grow and we've learned about the ecological hydrological and cultural importance tell us more about eab how do we know if a tree is infested with emerald ash borer well there are a bunch of telltale signs you can look for are the branches in the canopy dying is the tree sending out new side branches off of the trunk. These are both signs of stress. And ash can get stressed and show those signs for lots of different reasons. So the best way to tell if a tree is infested with emerald ash borer is to look for blonde patches on the bark with woodpecker holes. The woodpeckers like to eat the larvae, so they're much better at knowing when a tree is infested than people are. They're amazing at detecting them. If they find a tree with larvae in it, they will go up and down, hammering at it to dig out the larvae. And this flakes off patches of the outer bark. So you'll see these pinkish yellow or blonde patches on the bark. But the infestation starts at the top of the tree, and it takes a long time for the larvae to build up a big population in the tree. A tree might be infested for three to five years before you see the woodpecker activity or before the tree dies. What will it mean to lose this species as a component of our forest? I've been thinking a lot about that. And as an ecologist, I feel like everything is connected to everything else in the forest or any other natural community. So for me, losing black ash is like losing a community member. The forest community will change when it's gone, and the Abenaki community will lose something that's important to them in so many ways. Here are Carrie and Nancy talking about what the loss will mean to them. To think that my grandchildren and my grandchildren's grandchildren may never be able to handle and hold and make a black ash basket and to have that connection to their ancestors makes me really, really sad. 
breaks my heart honestly i can I, I sometimes look at there's this one tree i go to i go and see occasionally and i'm like it's just a little tree it's just a sapling i'm like oh maybe you can make it <laughs> you can get through this when that tree is gone what is going to take its place how are those other trees actually going to function and thrive when they're missing that that necessary tree that is providing all kinds of resources uh, we know that through the leaf litter is a big possibility, but what are they also doing through the mycorrhizae network? What are they providing to their neighboring trees through those connections that we know so little about? The, the loss is dramatic. And, and just the beauty of these trees and, and, and where they are and, and what they provide. Uh, I, I just can't, I can't speak to the loss. Um, it's more than my words can, can say. We don't really know what we're losing, and we, and we may never know. Ginger, the thought of losing another species on the landscape, I mean, that's really grim. Is, is there any hope? So the first bit of hope is that white ash and, to a much lesser extent, green ash seem to have some resistance to emerald ash borer. It's just a small percentage of the trees, but we're looking for them. And um, the Vermont Land Trust is doing research plots all over the state to see if they can find white ash, which might be resistant to the beetle. I've heard that there's some research into biocontrols. What's going on on that front? Biocontrols or biological controls are when another organism is used to predate or control an invasive species. In this case, the Department of Forest Parks and Recreation is releasing parasitic wasps that feed on the eggs and larvae of the emerald ash borer. We're hoping that after the EAB population peaks, the wasps will keep EAB at low levels, giving ash trees a chance to persist in the landscape. Some of the biocontrols do seem to be you know, pretty effective at keeping the larvae at low densities, but on small trees. So, um, you know, the, if, if you're thinking about like the, the appetite of a, of a parasitoid, so these are, these are insects that are gonna feed on the, on the larvae of emerald ash borer. The reason why I, I argue that you should be regenerating new ash out there because who knows, you know, when those biocontrols might uh, come into play and be effective, they are able to keep the larvae densities low enough that the trees aren't, you know, um, you know succumbing to EAB. Any other strategies? Another strategy is injecting the trunks with an insecticide that kills the beetle. This strategy probably presents the best hope for black ash and keeping mature black ash trees on the landscape. This is an expensive option though. So far, most of the injections have been done on urban shade trees because the injections have to be repeated every two to three years. We'll have more information on insecticide treatments in the show notes. Let's listen to some other perspectives about what landowners should be thinking about and doing to manage with EAB in mind. I think I get a, a dime for every time I, I, I give Mike Snyder credit for his amazing quote, don't be rash about your ash. And we, we've always felt that a bit from the you know forest management perspective, you know, um, with any threat of an invasive insect or disease, you know, it's still impacting the forest ecosystem. And, and so even though you're, you're hyper-focused on this threat, you know, sometimes we can make bigger impact by only focusing on the threat and not on the ecosystem, you know, or in, in, in how it impacts our objectives as, as a landowner. 
we would love to have people manage for conditions in the future that would allow ash to regenerate and be and still be on the landscape. So I think that sometimes people find that, the, that they have EAB, there's a lot of stuff going, you know, you're hearing about it, and their first instinct is just to liquidate all their ash, to take every ash tree out off of their land. In doing that, they're, you know, they may be sort of heading off like the EAB risk, but they're removing the ash and all the genetics, the genetic material from the ash that may provide for a future ash population. Um, and they also might be taking some trees that have some natural resistance. From an ecological standpoint, it stinks that tree could die, um, but, he, but a dead tree is also like super valuable um, in the forest. And, and oftentimes our, our ash, particularly white ash, are some of the biggest trees in the forest. So big, big dead trees are even that much better um, to have out in the forest. I think it really depends on on how ash fits into that landowner's you know long-term vision for that forest. Um, you know, what are the trade-offs of harvesting that wood versus you know, leaving that tree um, you know as a future habitat if it does ultimately die? If we're going to actually protect some trees um, with insecticides, you know, do we um, think a bit about um, you know are there individual trees that make more sense to invest in protecting them? You know, and keeping them out there. You know, and, uh, even even though it might be a cost. Um, are there cultural or ecological or, or other amenity values that make it worthwhile? We also highly recommend that ash is kept in, in the forest at some level through, uh, through every size class. So uh, uh, there used to be this uh, hope for slowing down the insect and that the, just go in and cut all your big trees and leave the little trees. Well, that's just absolutely the worst way to look at um, forest management. And we are really working hard to take those thoughts out of the picture. That's just simple hydrating. It's not good for the forest. We should be managing the forest, not the insect. If you're, you're a landowner and you have a bunch of white ash in, in your, in, on your forest that you've always viewed as a big part of your economic portfolio um, on that site, and, and there's an opportunity to um, and do a harvest and do it in a way that thinks about the future options in that forest, not just cutting ash out, because that's really not sustainable. Some people have been willing to say, okay, I'm going to take a loss on any kind of economic opportunity for that small amount of ash I have on my landscape. And I'm just going to leave all of my ash in the hopes that there are some resistant trees within that, within that composition of their forest. If the tree is cut, we won't know if it's resistant. Keep it in the landscape to the highest degree that you can throughout all of the age classes. And then there are folks out there that are doing amazing work with injecting the insecticide, which we know works, therefore keeping that seed source there as well. If we can find just pockets of these opportunities to keep black ash alive while we're waiting for nature and science to catch up, we at the Land Trust, we have a staff of foresters who work with our conserved landowners and we recommend that they don't necessarily make changes in their forest management plan if they find emerald ash borer, that they continue to manage um, the same way that they that they otherwise would. So that's what we do in our, in our management yeah. plan, um, making sure that, that there's long-term possibility for, mm -hmm. for, for the species and not, not cutting too much and not just removing ash yeah. because we, we can. 
you know, one pathway is kind of your pessimist and, you know, you really can't do anything about it. And, and, you know, really almost a defeated attitude. Um, the, the equally dangerous is an optimist. You kind of ignore it or don't think it's a big deal and, and, and don't don't change. And so I say, but the real path to take is to be a silviculturist, which is to integrate information, both ecological, social, cultural, economic, and to adapt. I think there's a real um, power in, in the collaborations that are that are building. Sadly, because these topics really transcend not just foresters, but really many other disciplines and, and, and you know, most lay people are worried about it. Emerald ash borer, there's the opportunity to really kind of build coalitions around um, topics and issues. It's really good to hear that there are some options for keeping ash as part of our forests. What about preserving black ash as a resource for indigenous people or other basket makers? Yeah, so Carrie Wood and others are working on ways to harvest some black ash to preserve the splints for future generations and maybe treat some black ash trees to try to keep them as seed sources. But to pound that much ash is going to require a lot of people. Maybe we can save seeds. Maybe we can have small nurseries. Maybe we can at least recognize the ones that are impacted that need to be harvested, we could process the splint today from the log. Once that's in raw splint form, if you keep that inside in an okay environment, that's gonna last hundreds of years. Look at your furniture in your house if you keep it out of the elements. So maybe, maybe we can process enough that my grandchildren's great-grandchildren can have some splint available until the trees can come back. And we can save enough trees and inject them with the safe, give them a vaccination. <laughs> so a few trees don't succumb to the beetle. And then as time goes on, saplings will grow. But in the meantime, we're hoping to have some educational workshops and ash pounding events one at the Ethan Allen Homestead in the Burlington area. We're hoping to do one up in the Nohegan Basin, up in the Northeast Kingdom. We're hoping to do a couple down in southern Vermont. Maybe we can work with some of the tech schools. We're beginning some conversations. This is going to take the entire community of Vermont to have any level of impact in preservation for future generations. And it really matters. And what an opportunity to bring different state agencies together and different members of the community together in a common goal. In past episodes, we've talked about land ownership as a journey. The issue of ash and EAB is no different. Owning and caring for land is a process that starts with identifying your values, knowing what you have for a resource, and making decisions about its stewardship. We are so fortunate to have many professionals in Vermont to help landowners make decisions about their land along this journey. We've compiled a list of many of these resources in the show notes. Ginger, thank you so much for joining us and for bringing your expertise and your passion to the conversation. I've learned so much today from you and from all of our guests. It's been really fun talking about this. Although it seems like a big topic that's complicated and complex, you know, we've, we've drilled down to some of these interesting pieces of hope. And I love like the cultural pieces that are connected to this tree. And we're not done talking about this issue yet. There's still so much more that we're learning about black ash, about ash in Vermont, and about emerald ash borer. So maybe a future episode? Absolutely. 
We want to thank all of our participants, Tony D'Amato from UVM Forestry Program, Alaire Diamond with the Vermont Land Trust, Carrie Wood, an Abenaki basket maker, Nancy Patch, the Franklin and Grand Isle County Forester, and Rich and Ann Chalmers, Vermont Covered's cooperators and landowners in Williamstown. And a special thank you to our guest host, Ginger Nickerson from UVM Extension. Ginger, any last words? Yeah, sure. If people are interested in connecting with Carrie about how to help with the effort to preserve ash splints, her email will be in the show notes along with many other resources. If you want to learn more about emerald ash borer, or if you think that you've seen a tree that might be infested with emerald ash borer, go to the report it link on vtinvasives.org. This has been Kate Borer. Lisa Sawsville and Ginger Nickerson. And you've been listening to Heartwood, Vermont, hosted by Vermont Coverts, UVM Extension's Urban and Community Forestry Program, and UVM Center for Research on Vermont. This episode of Heartwood was produced by Leah Kelleher and made possible by funding from the Vermont Agency of Agriculture, Food and Markets, and the USDA APHIS. The interviews we heard were conducted in collaboration by the podcast team and Ginger Nickerson. Thanks for listening. <laughs>